There's a very popular song that boasts, I did it my way. Now, though that idea sounds very appealing, to live our lives exactly how we want, to do everything our way, is that really the best way to live? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pren, and welcome to Bible 805. Today we're going to look at the book of Judges and see what it shows us in around 300 years of Israel's history, what happened when people did exactly that. But before we get into the lesson itself, I'd like to just take a little bit of a parenthesis here and tell you that I'm changing the title of this series. Now, most of you won't pay any attention to that, but I decided to change the title of the series from the Bible in chronological order to the great story. And I'm probably going to have a subtitle, but I haven't figured that out yet. And the reason that I'm changing it, or I'm in the process of it, is I realized that, for starters, uh, through the Bible in chronological order is... Well, it's kind of a boring title, but it's not just that. It's also really intimidating, and I don't want people to be intimidated by this material. I was, I was thinking and praying about it. I thought, what this, what I'm really doing is telling you the whole Bible story. And I did it. I actually wrote a book a number of years ago on church marketing, and that's not really worth going into. But I had, um, I wrote some things in there, and I had a quote in there that I think are really appropriate for what we're doing now with Bible 805. So let me read you the quote. This quote is actually by Dr. Richard Mao. He was formerly the president of Fuller Seminary, and he was probably one of my very, very favorite uh, seminary professors. He's just a really godly man. But in one of his writings, he, he said this. He said, and here's the thing. The gospel is a fairy story that's true. There really is a curse. There really is a dragon. But the amazing thing is, God sent his son, and those who trust him will live happily ever after. And I went on to say, well, why why do we need to tell this story? Why do we need to tell this, this story of salvation, which is what I'm really trying to do with Bible 805. And what I wrote in this particular thing, and I think it applies here. Let me read it to you. I said, because many people outside the church have our story wrong. The ending of the gospel story for believers in Jesus is to truly live happily ever after. There'll be trials on the journey, but the trials will end. Heaven is a certainty. All wrongs will be righted, all hurts healed. Rewards will be given for every kind and brave deed. All heaven will applaud. But not everyone's heard the true story. And without that hearing, people believe distorted stories. The God of love and compassion is portrayed as a despot, arbitrarily inflicted inflicting pain on people the same way a small boy tortures bugs. Other false reports assert he's lost interest and has walked away, leaving his children to fight and squabble without hope of justice or resolution. In the saddest tale of all, some people don't believe their lives are part of any story, but simply a blot of sadness scribbled without hope and shortly erased.
And then I kind of modified what I said in the other thing to say that Bible 805 is about telling the true story. And so that's what we're going to, we're going to kind of look at that and kind of reframe what we're doing. And now the story that we're going to talk about is from Judges and Ruth. And I kind of started on one of the most sad and depressing parts of the Bible, but still it's it's one that's very important. Uh, these books, as far as we know, were probably written by Samuel. We'll actually talk all about him in the next lesson, but um, the time frame that these books cover is approximately 1380 to 1045 BC. Now the book is summarized actually in the last verse of the book, and that is where it says in Judges 21-24, in those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. In other words, they were were singing that song, you know, I did it my way. In the books that we've just been reading, we've seen how the nation of Israel was taken out of Egypt. They wandered for 40 years. They go into the promised land. They conquer it. They're now in the promised land. And the the stories thus far have really been about the nation. At this point, though, we shift into primarily focusing on individuals. Yes, it refers to the nation as a whole, but the book of Judges really focuses on specific individuals. And some of our favorite Bible stories are there. The stories about Gideon, Samson, Deborah, and then there's a number of judges we aren't as familiar with. And though the actions by these individuals were oftentimes really great, and they are the stuff of wonderful stories, we really need to look at what they did really in context because our great exploits are really only part of the story. And in some instances, you can see how they even look better in the context of all the terrible things that were going on. And in some other instances, you'll see how either how they ended their life or various things about them. Maybe it's a little bit different than what you're familiar with or what you remember from Sunday school. If you went to Sunday school and and grew up learning the stories, or if you haven't, well, we'll just start right in from the beginning. Joshua died as the book opens and the leadership was passed on to and I pause there because that was the first problem he didn't designate anyone to be a leader in the same way that Moses trained him and the leadership was given to him and the way it puts it in the book it says in Judges 2 7 it says the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel Joshua died after that the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now, we're never told why Joshua didn't designate someone to take over after him. We don't know why he didn't do that, but the results were really tragic. What happens next, and this first section in Joshua 2 really kind of outlines the entire story, so I'm going to read some of the verses and then we'll talk about the specific individuals. In Joshua 2, 1 it says, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord the God of their ancestors who'd brought them out of Egypt, and they followed and worshipped the various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger. 
In his anger the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. And we know that God had told them, if you don't obey me, bad things are going to happen. They didn't obey, bad things happen. But the Lord didn't abandon his people. It goes on to tell how he raised up judges who had said save the people but then it always happens it goes on to say when the judge died the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways now before we go and talk about some of the specific judges I want to pause for a little bit of a challenge for what I I call part of our story the story that we're living out and what that is is going back to Joshua And again, we don't know why he didn't designate someone to be in charge. We we have no idea why that whole generation seemed to take it for granted that people would be godly. And we, we just don't know what happened. But for us... We need to think carefully about what are we passing on? What are we enabling others to do? And we need to be really honest about the Christian life, especially to younger people, because there's there seems to be such a thing today. And, and I can kind of talk to this. Um, uh, both my husband and I used to, uh, we, we used to work with youth. And for many years, I was a youth group leader. And um, I was kind of a serious one, but I had, and I, I had really wonderful groups of kids and the Lord was very good in that many of them uh, went on to be in Christian work and uh, working for Christian organizations and, and doing some really wonderful things. And one of the things that I get very concerned about today is that it seems like so many youth groups, so many things with with younger Christians, they talk about how much fun the Christian life is. And, oh, we have to show the kids what a great time it is and how much fun it is and how much fun it is. And that's not all the Christian life is about. Yes, there's a lot of things that are great, but I think particularly in the coming years, we have to be really careful in what we pass on to people. Now, I I had in my notes here that sort of a warning, this is negative old lady advice coming, but the, the thing that I want to say, and I want to say this very seriously, and I hope you take this very seriously, and I hope you pass this on to the people that are in your life that are younger than you are. And that is that life in the coming years, just overall, is probably going to get much more difficult in many ways for believers. Now, Judges shows us what happens when people have abandoned a belief in God. And I think that in our world today, that is certainly the case. Many people no longer believe in God. And it has an impact on society as a whole. But not only that, there, and I don't want to get into any kind of discussions on the cause or whatever, but natural disasters do seem to be getting worse. That does seem to be a trend. And with all of these things, with the deterioration of just the much of the moral fabric in society, with natural disasters getting worse, I do not think that this is going to get a whole lot better for the children that we leave behind. And so I think it's really important 
to talk to them about this. And I've, I've done this. I'm not just saying this. There's some young people in, in our lives. We kind of call them our adopted family that we love very dearly. And I've actually, over dinner with some of the kids, said, you know, our world's getting really icky. And I'm not, you know, I'm not an alarmist. I'm not whatever. Um, but I think, you know, I'll tell them, I want you to think very seriously about what might happen in the future. Um, say in a natural disaster or whatever, um, are you going to be someone that shares food and helps people? Or, you know, just what are you going to do? Uh, what will you do if you're the only Christian in your workplace or your school or whatever? And just having some honest conversations with the people that we love, I think that's very important. And telling them very strongly also that knowing God's word and trusting him, that is the only way really that that will make it through the very difficult times of life, no matter what they might be. So you don't want to leave this earth without a legacy of godliness. And I encourage you, even starting now on your social media, what are you saying to people? I was looking at someone's social media the other day, and it was kind of sad because all this person did was posted pictures of themselves. And I thought, well, that's that's kind of nice, but um, or na- actually, I didn't think it was nice at all. I thought that was really dreadful um, because there's so many things in life that we can talk about, that we can share, that we can be positive about. Your social media really gives away your heart. You think it's just pictures or whatever, but it really gives away your heart. And so think through, what are you passing on with that? You know, anything that you put online is going to be there forever. So so um, put on it things that are are really reflective of a viewpoint of a person who trusts God, who believes in God, for whom God's word is the most important thing. So I can I don't want to get distracted on all that. Let's jump in back to the book of Judges right now. Now there are lots of judges that are described in the book. We're not going to talk about all of them. There were different ones who um, uh, you probably haven't heard of. Ehud and Shamgar and Tola and Jair and Isban and Elon and Abdon and Jephthah. And there's just little short mentions of many of them. Uh, for example, Shamgar, it says, struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And then Jephthah, you may have heard his name. He is, of course, also talked about in the book of Hebrews. And his story, I just want to clarify that, just take a few minutes. It's near the end of the book, but in his story, he was an illegitimate son of one of the leaders in Israel, and he was called on to be a military leader. And he decided he would he would do that, but he vowed to give to the Lord if he had victory, whatever came out from his house first when he returned, which was rather a stupid vow, but he did that. And when he returned, his daughter, his only daughter, came out of his house to greet him. Now then there's been a, a good bit of debate. Did he actually sacrifice as in sacrifice and killing his daughter? And Bible scholars say, no, 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 no. That is not what happened because God never condones uh, 
human sacrifice and he would not have been commended in the book of Hebrews had he done that. What he did was he dedicated her to perpetual service in in God's service and perpetual virginity and this was really a, a huge sacrifice for her and for him because that meant the cutting off of his physical line. So we have some of these scattered judges and there are also some really horrible uh, stories that happen in the book and I'll, I'll get to those a little bit later. But let's talk now about four judges that um, are a little bit more well-known. The first one, probably not as much. His name was Othniel. I'll talk about him in just a minute. Then Deborah, who is the woman judge. Gideon, and he's the one with the fleece. And then, by the way, Ruth lived at the same time as Gideon, and we'll talk about her. Even though she wasn't a judge, her story's really important here. And then we'll end up talking about Samson. Now, it might be helpful to understand the biblical definition of a judge. It isn't just someone who decides on judicial manners, though that that was part of it. Usually they were a military leader, but it was over a, a limited area. There was no overall judge for all of, of Israel at this time. They didn't have income or taxing power. It was not a hereditary office. These individuals were called and empowered by God for specific tasks at specific times. Now the first one that we'll look at in a little bit more detail is Othniel. Othniel was Caleb's nephew as in remember Joshua and Caleb they were the two spies that trusted God and Caleb is really kind of an interesting person. Um, early on in the book he proved to be a very successful warrior. He won a city and then also Caleb said whoever takes this city I will give them my daughter in marriage which he did. Now just kind of a little funny side note about Caleb on this. Uh, Caleb apparently gives his daughter some land in the Negev, which, by the way, the Negev, it's all desert. <laughs> and so she comes to him and she says, Dad, she says, you've given me this land, but I really need some water. So give me the upper and lower springs. And um, Caleb gives them to her. Well, then time goes on and it says that the people were oppressed for eight years. And then the Spirit of the Lord comes on Othniel and it says that he became Israel judge and he went to war. He, uh, It says that the Lord gave the king of Aram into the hands of Othniel who overpowered him. And then it just sums it up by saying the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel the son of Kenaz dies. And so by the way Kenaz was Caleb's younger brother. So um, here's this pattern that set up people sin. God allows them to experience judgment and oppression. They cry out to God. God sends a judge. They're delivered and then it repeats all over again. But let's look next at Deborah. She was already serving as a judge and it says that she was leading Israel. By the way, she's the only judge that is actually called a prophet. But she was serving as a prophet and a judge and then God called her to deliver her people from they were being oppressed. So she summons Barak who is a general and she commissions him to fight. He does that. He wins. 
but the victory is actually given to a woman and uh, her name is Heber and she's a Kenite and the Kenites if you remember you may not but they were some of the relatives of Moses remember that he fled to Midian and he actually fled to the clan of the Kenites and so uh, they're living out there in in the same area and Sisera the general that Barak was fighting he runs away from his army he apparently knows he's going to be defeated he goes to her tent he said I'm, I'm exhausted give me something to eat give me something to drink she gives him milk and she feeds him and he lays down to go to sleep and it says that she then takes a tent peg and pounds it through his temple and he dies so um, she is the one actually that is credited with the final victory once again the land has rest for 40 years and it is then oppressed by the Midianites now just a few minutes ago I said remember Moses fled to the Midianites they were also descendants of Abraham and at the time that Moses fled there they got along with um, with God's people and that is where he lived the Kenites were a sub clan uh, they actually helped guide the Israelites through the desert they had very friendly relations with them but by this time something had gone very very wrong and the Midianites were actually oppressing Israel just brutally now Israel for its part wasn't doing so well in Gideon's town there was actually an altar to Baal and there was an Asherah pole so um, pagan religion was thriving and publicly practiced but things are really bad People cry out to the Lord, and so the angel of the Lord appears to a man named Gideon while he is hiding and threshing grain in secret. And the angel says to him, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, Who are you talking to? You know, this not me. And he says, by the way, you know, if God is with us, why do we have all these problems? You know, we're being so oppressed and all these terrible things are happening. And the angel doesn't even bother to say, look, you're worshiping false gods. God told you this is what would happen. You didn't listen. This is what's going on. But the angel just says, I want you to deliver Israel. You know, God has heard your prayers. He's come to deliver now. And he says, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And then Gideon says, uh, uh, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least of my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And then comes up the situation that many of you have heard of, where um, Gideon says, well, you know, I okay, you know, but uh, to really show that it's you and to really prove that you want me to do this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put this fleece out on the ground, and I want the fleece to be wet and everything dry around it. And that happens and he says by the way the next day um let's reverse it let's make uh the fleece wet and the ground really dry 
and God is gracious and answers that. And again, this story, and I've talked about this in other podcasts, this story is not to encourage us to test God or to quote-unquote put out a fleece. God had already told him what he wanted him to do and what how God would bless that. We are to believe God. We are to act on what he tells us to do. God was gracious in this instance, but that is not an example for us to follow when we need to make a decision. Now then, um, Gideon summons this army, 22,000 respond, and God says, that's too many. If you have that many, the victory will not seem like it comes from me. So through a series of events, he whittles down the army to 300, and they attack at night. They have a pitcher with a a light inside, and at one point, they strike the pitcher. These lights blaze out of them. They shout, and the Midianites think that it's some absolutely huge army, and they flee, killing each other in the process. And Gideon has this great victory. Now the lesson here of course is that if you don't think you have the resources to do what God wants that might be precisely the point. Oftentimes God selects the most unlikely people to do really great work for him because you see God is the one who gets the glory. He is the one who is ultimately strong and sometimes if we have too many resources, if we have too much going for us, we have no idea that God is the one who is in control, who is acting. But after the victory, and usually a lot of Bible stories quit at this point, and they shouldn't because, as I again, I've, I've warned people before, a lot of times after a great victory, that is when we are most vulnerable to defeat. Because the people come to Gideon and they say, Gideon, we want you to be our ruler. And Gideon says, no, no, I can't do that. But he does it anyway. And he makes this golden ephod, which was like a thing that the high priest wore, and the people end up worshiping it. And they had 40 years of relative peace, but it says the people returned to sin. And then after Gideon dies, he had a son, Abimelech, who was really a horrible person. He kills all of his brothers, and he is a tyrant until he dies. And he he dies a rather ignominious death for that time, in that he is besieging a city, and a woman has a millstone, and she drops it over the city walls, and it cracks his skull. And he says to his armor bearer, kill me now, it can't be said that a woman, you know, killed me from just dropping a stone. So he kills him and that's the end of Abimelech. Now, while all this is going on, during this same time, we have the story of Ruth. And it starts out by saying, during the time that the judges lived, there was a famine and a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi go to Moab. Now this was one of the the neighboring countries. His two sons marry Moabite women and then all three men die. And Naomi hears that things are better back in Israel and she decides to go home. Both of her daughter-in-laws start out with her. One turns back and then Ruth of course remains and she has that uh, rather famous verse that said at a lot of weddings which really isn't appropriate for weddings but anyway um, taken out of context where Ruth says where you go I'll go where you die I'll die your people will be my people and the most important part of it she says and your God will be my God. 
So this in many ways was where she was affirming her faith in Almighty God. They go back to, by the way, Bethlehem. That's the town that Naomi was from. And obviously, and this is really interesting, this was a city that still revered and lived by God's laws. The thing that's so important to see in Judges is, and the book of Ruth illustrates this so well, that the nation overall was horribly evil and did terrible things. But there are always pockets of people, no matter how bad things get, that trust God, that serve Him. And in this case, it was a city. And the reason we know that is everything we see about the city shows that they were obeying the Levitical laws. They obeyed the laws of gleaning. They obeyed the laws of the kinsman redeemer. The way that they spoke to each other. The way, just the things that the, the everything we see about that city is it was it was literally a very godly city. But back to the story. They arrive there. They don't have uh, any man to take care of them. They have no income. So Ruth does what was appropriate at the time. She goes out to glean in the fields. And what that meant is, as the harvesters were harvesting things of course they didn't get everything and so there would be grain that would be left behind or fruit or whatever it was and the Levitical laws stated that you were not in fact you weren't even supposed to what they said harvest to the very edges of your field you were supposed to leave that for the poor and so Ruth goes along and she gathers up this grain and then there happens to be the owner of the field whose name is Boaz and he notices her and he protects her and he says stay in my field you'll be safe here and Boaz eventually Naomi when Ruth goes home and she has all this grain and uh, tells Naomi what she did uh, she says oh that's wonderful that you were in his field because Boaz is one of what's called a kinsman redeemer and that means he is one who can buy their land he can marry Ruth and he can have children to carry on the name of the family and that's exactly what happens he and Boaz and Ruth get married they have a son Naomi ends her life with great joy and it's it and the book ends up with giving a little bit of the genealogy then of the family their sons named Obed Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David. So Ruth, the Moabitess, is actually the great-grandmother of King David. And again, just to recap some of the lessons of Ruth, and this is one of the really bright spots in this time, is no matter how bad overall society may be, no matter how difficult your personal circumstances, God always has people to serve him. And what's important here, what we all need to hear right now, because our world's getting kind of crazy, um, well, it always has been, but it, it seems like some things are a little crazier than other things right now. It's important to not focus on what you can't control. Yeah, you want to listen to the news a little bit, know what's going on, whatever, but that's not what you want to focus on. Some people just get obsessed with events and politics and things like that. And you really don't want to do that. You can't control those things. Uh, you, you might want to, you know, stay updated and pray. But that's not where your focus should be. Our focus should be on our God. And he is the one who is ultimately in control. He is the one where to serve.
And now then, we go to Samson, who is the last judge mentioned in the book. He was called from birth to be a judge. When he was younger, he wanted to marry a Philistine woman, um, but that did not go well. And he ends up killing a thousand uh, of the Philistines, and he's given a great victory. Now, he was raised to be a Nazarite, which means he had to live a very strict life. This whole thing with a woman, that was not appropriate. Um, but he seems to have gotten his act together. He also wasn't supposed to cut his hair. These were the things that were part of the Nazarite vow. It says, and there's this little parenthesis there, and a lot of people just sort of skip right over this. He led Israel as a judge for 20 years. So for 20 years, he lived a life that was pleasing to God. He judged Israel. He was a leader. The land was protected and at peace. But it didn't last. He visits a prostitute, and then it says that sometime later he fell in love with Delilah. And most of us know how that story turns out. After many deceptions, he finally reveals the secret of his strength because the Philistines are just uh, telling her that they're going to kill her and her family and all that if she doesn't find it out. He tells her that his hair has never been cut. While he's asleep, they cut his hair, he is captured, and his eyes are put out. But... The story doesn't end there. It says the hair on his head began to grow. And the Philistines mocked him and they abused him. And then one day they brought him to their temple. And he's standing there in their temple. And then Samson prays to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. And let me with one blow get my revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And it says he, he puts his hands on the pillars and with all his strength he pushes them down and the entire building collapses and it says that he killed more Philistines in his death than he did in his life. And it's really kind of interesting what they found archaeologically and um, on the website I'll have a picture of this but there are two stone pillars that uh, or pillar bases that archaeologists have found that the Philistine temples apparently had this rather odd architecture that they found in a number of their temples where the two central pillars that supported the roof were made of wood um, and then they rested on stone support bases. The pillars were only about six feet apart and if they surmised that if someone was really strong they actually could have pushed them down and the whole building would have collapsed and they have found archaeological support for this. Well then the book ends, the book of uh, Judges, with two really really horrible stories. Um, in Judges 17 and 18 there is a Levite who serves a man for pay and he uh, gets amasses this collection of idols and it's so sad because Levites who were scattered throughout Israel were the ones that were supposed to be teaching the people. But here's a Levite who abandons his proper job and he uh, he gets these idols and then this group of people from the tribe of Dan come by. They take the Levite with them and they slaughter all of the people in a city that they go to and then they set up the Levite's idols and worship them. I mean, it's just a bad, horrible story. And then the next one is even worse. It's just a dreadful story. It tells the story of another Levite who is obviously not doing what he's supposed to do. He has a concubine. It says she leaves him. He goes to get her and he's at her father 
father's house and they drink and party and drink and party for several days and then finally one day it's really late and he goes I we just got to get home so he takes his concubine they head towards home they stop at this one particular city um, they're taken in for the night by someone who feels sorry for them the horrible people of the city come bashing banging on the door saying uh, bring out the man we want to have sex with him they the host says no I'm going to give you his concubine they push her out the door this is this is really in the Bible this is really a horrible story but it's in the Bible and it says they abused her all night and she dies and then the Levite sees her uh, dead literally on the doorstep the next morning he cuts her into 12 pieces sends her throughout Israel and says this is a horrible thing it should have never been done let's get vengeance they take vengeance on one of the tribes and almost completely destroy it and then they realize after they've killed all these people that this is terrible because they've said that none of their wives can marry them so they end up kidnapping women for their wives and this is how the book ends. Really horrible. And it ends by saying, in those days, it, it doesn't, by the way, it doesn't make any judgments. It doesn't say, oh, isn't this terrible? We're supposed to know that. All it ends with is this really dreadful story. And then it says, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now, these are stories of true real people. And I won't take time to go into all of it, but there is tremendous archaeological support for things in the book. There are names and places all verified in the Memphis Stele and the um, Ekron inscription place names and the Ross I can't even say it, Ras Samara, um, all of the dig there, many, many things have been confirmed. The major battles, the powers, they refer to Israel. There's just a lot of things that archaeology confirms. And these were real people struggling with real things. And I think what the book shows us is that humanity as a whole does not do very well when their song is, I did it my way. The book of Judges shows over 300 years of time what happens when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It leads to every imaginable form of sin, warfare, and oppression. And doing it your way, it doesn't just stop with self-indulgence. It spills over into families and nations. And everyone that, that is touched by it is, is hurt from it. So why did it go so wrong? What happened? Why is it wrong to not want to, to want to do things just our way? Now think about this a little bit. The reason is we are created beings and we function best when we do things the way our creator intended. The really wonderful news is though that our creator knows what's best for us. But the core problem, I think, in Judges, and for many people today, is we really don't believe that. We don't believe those two things. Number one, we don't believe that we're created beings. We like to think we're self-made. Now, how we decided that, I do not know, because none of us were able to call life into being. But we, we want to think, or any of the things that happened to us, if, if we weren't born into the family we were born into, and with the advantages that we have, living where we live, whatever it is we are not self-made no one is self-made so that's that's a fallacy right there but we also don't believe that our creator has the best in mind for us
So to challenge our assumptions, I, I want us to think about our Creator, who He is and what He's like. And I'm going to share some things that are in the Bible. If you're not sure about trusting the Bible, please go to the Bible 805 website and listen to the series on why we can trust the Bible. It's, on, it's entitled Truth and History, probably another title that I ought to change. But anyway, I, I'd encourage you to listen to that. But the Bible tells us, first of all, that our Creator created a perfect world. And then when humanity sinned, he didn't give up on us. He promised a Savior. And the Old Testament that we're studying now is one long story of preparation for the birth of Jesus, who would be that Savior. Now, when Jesus came to earth, the Bible says he was God in human flesh. Now, think about that. God. All, people always wonder what God is like. Well, to know, just look at Jesus. And what kind of a person was he? Because even if you don't believe that the Bible is the word of God, it is through many ways you can show that it is true history about a man that really did live at that time named Jesus. And what was he like? Well, he was really fun at a party. He made enough wine at the wedding at Cana. I kind of calculated it out one time. He made enough wine to fill a hot tub. I mean, he really made a lot of it, and it was really good wine. He was kind to the hurting. He healed sick people. He fed hungry people. He was a teacher who knew his scriptures and traditions, but he loved to put a new spin on things. He'd always say, well, you've heard it said like this, but let me tell you, this is what it really means to love God, to love your neighbor. This is the kind of person our Creator is, and not only that. We can trust him because he sees the beginning and the end. He loves us. He understands us. And he has all knowledge. I was thinking about the TV show where you have like a lifeline where you can call someone and they give you information that that you don't have. Well, of course, God is the ultimate lifeline. He knows everything, literally, even more than Google, hard as that might be to... uh, to think about. But seriously, you can tap into his knowledge anytime through prayer. We have access to him. Final final challenge here. Um, you know, his way or our way? That's the big question of life. Now, Judges shows what happens when we do it our way. But we have a choice. No matter what might be happening in our crazy world, individual actions matter. They matter to the people around you, maybe in a big way, like with the judges who changed their local or national history at the time. But most likely for most of us, it'll be like Ruth, where we simply live a life that is trusting God, and that will have a huge effect on the people around us, the people in our families, our neighbors, those that we care about. And we have no idea what God might be working in our life in his great story of salvation. She had no idea she was going to be the grandmother of King David. She was going to be an early ancestor of Jesus. None of us sees our part in the great story God is writing. But all of us, like the judges, like Ruth, can simply trust God as clearly as we understand his will in our daily tasks as Ruth did.
and be willing to follow him in ways that might seem impossible, as it did for Gideon when he called him a mighty man of valor when he was terribly afraid. But God went on to use him in wonderful ways. And that same God loves you, cares about you, and wants to use you in the ways that he has that are wonderful that you might not even see the meaning of in this life now and forever. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson. They're in downloadable PDF format and the other materials, and you can also read them online, and the other materials that I have at www.bible805.com. And do sign up for the newsletter. I'm going to really be trying to add some additional material uh, for you, and I'll let you know about that in the newsletter. Uh, please tell your friends about the podcast and encourage them to listen. I do try to make things self-contained so that you'll learn something even if you jump in at any time in this series. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pren, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.